0: Hi everyone my name is Saber Papoli, and I'm the owner and founder of Hoof Falls and Foot Falls and today we are going to be doing an interview that's a little bit different than what I do it's actually someone who's outside of the equine and equine assisted activities and therapies industry but it is someone that I wanted to introduce you guys to and especially the work that he's put out because it directly applies to who we are as instructors and how we can teach and better interact with our students. So today, uh, Nick Winkleman is going to be joining us. He is actually in Ireland right now, and Nick is the head of athletic performance and science for the Irish rugby football. And he has recently put out the book, "The Language of Coaching. If you guys have followed my page or any of my emails for a time, you know that I highly recommend this book. I've shared uh, a lot of Nick's presentations before on his his teaching and coaching language. So without further ado, Nick, welcome. Thank you so much for coming in and joining in on this interview.
1: Oh Sabra, you know it's an honor and, and your support has been has been amazing. So thank you.
0: Absolutely. So um, you know I've known of you for a while. I got the, the honor of teaching alongside your your wonderful wife for a few years. Um, she's a fellow instructor in in therapeutic riding and a wonderful teacher, wonderful instructor, mentor. So can you share a little bit about the work that you've done and kind of how it led to this book that you had published and now available to people and that came out just a few months ago?
1: Yeah, yeah, Sabra. So I mean, as you say there, my, my wife has been, you know, she's She's the unsung hero in the book, both in the in the decade leading up to its writing, and most certainly the last four years. And, and so, as I told her, really, her name should be alongside it. But it's uh, we we can see that it's dedicated to her, and rightly so. Uh, and so, as you know, Sabra, because Brittany uh, has worked in equine therapy and with PATH, for me, I've been very fortunate literally to have a front row seat. I think it'd be fun to let everyone know. You probably have that where I used to work, uh, Exos, mm-hmm. uh, formerly athletes performance, you know, in horses help. We're, we're literally right next door to each other. So we would pass my daughter, Gracie over the fence uh-huh. and, and Brittany was doing lessons and vice versa. So just for the, the listeners, that's how closely integrated we were. But in terms of my own work, by trade, I'm a strength and conditioning coach. And so, you know, I help humans upgrade their, their physical assets, bigger, faster, stronger, if you'd like. And my, my primary world has been in professional sports. So you know, helping players go into the NFL via the NFL combine, Major League Baseball, elite military, that's kind of, if you would, that's been my canvas for which these ideas have come through. And like any movement practice, and that's the key thing here, I see myself as a movement mm-hmm. professional but my specific realm is in strength and conditioning. I look at, at path instructors and the like, still movement professionals. There's the movement of the rider on the horse mm-hmm. and the movement of the horse. But still, I think the commonality, the link that we should make from the get-go here is we're talking about movement. And so broadly speaking, I've always had an interest in how we as, as humans, how animals, how we learn to move. And, you know, I, there's, there's, many different parts, chapters, so to speak, in my story I could begin, but the one I'll kind of say is this moment where I recontextualized myself as a teacher, my athletes as students, and our subject matter as movement. And if you take that lens, inevitably, you identify this whole idea of motor learning, Mm -hmm. the science of learning to move. And when you start to dive into the science of learning to move, we can really simplify it down into two core what I call coaching tools and these are coaching tools equally for myself as they are for any of the instructors listening in and really we can define them as verbal and non-verbal coaching tools really is that simple so what do I mean by that broadly speaking if it's verbal I can use instruction. So, you know, Sabra, if you're my athlete and we're working on sprinting, for example, in my world, and I see that you're struggling with something, I want to kind of break the frame. I want to break the way you're thinking about it because obviously you're not making a change. And I, and I give you a different focus. And so let's say, for example, you're not pushing away from the ground enough. So I might give you a cue like, you know, explode off the ground or push the ground away, or in Arizona where you are, drive off the line like a rattlesnake's about to bite your ankle, beat the (laughs) bite. And so in those cases, I'm taking what we call a top-down approach. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to use your mind to focus, and so you get something different from your body. Uh, But equally, we can take a nonverbal approach. And without even giving you a cue, I could actually say, okay, Sabron, on the next rep, I'm going to race you. And assuming that I'm actually faster than you, this stimulus outside the body as a part of the environment is going to trigger your movement, your behavior to change something, to probably get off the line a little bit quicker. And so these are examples of the two tools I came across. And as I'm looking at this, I'm like, well, this makes a whole lot of sense. How we coach and the way we form a learning environment or how we coach and the way we use language to guide someone through it. But I don't know how it is for yourself and your instructors, but our conversation suggests that it's similar to my world. Mm -hmm. And that is when I was going through my own education, we're inundated with what to do with drills and biomechanics and exercises and programming and, and the next gizmo gadget tool. What I collectively call the what. Yeah. but we're very rarely given any concrete nuanced instruction or education on how. Mm -hmm. And so I describe that as how do I get the information off the paper and into the person. And so over the last decade of those two nonverbal and verbal, I've studied them both deeply, but I have found communication language, hence the name of the book, the language of coaching is the area that we use more than any other, like it or not. And it's the area where we can get the greatest benefit when our language harmonizes with the mind of the person we're teaching. But also, we can create the greatest level of barriers and detriment. And and Sabra, I'm I'm sure it works for you as well. If I give an athlete too much information, we kind of have a phrase in my field, paralysis by analysis Mm -hmm. or overthinking. I'm quite certain that you have a similar type experience if you give one of your writers too much information for the skill you're teaching. And so ultimately when you start to zoom in to language and coaching, you see that wow, how much information we give is important. When we give the information is important. When we don't give the information to create the space for learning and ownership is important. And then finally the content of what we say to frame it in a manner that is appropriate, that is relevant, that is interesting Mm -hmm. to the recipient. And especially in your case, where you might be dealing with various levels of physical and mental ability, we have to make sure that we are using language that most certainly is appropriate, but this is true for everybody. Mm -hmm. And so this is the journey and that's some of the, if you would, the texture through the journey that I've been considered with. And, And I've been able to be lucky And that I've applied that in my own work for over 15 years now and helping people be better movers. But equally, as you know, Sabra, I inevitably went and got a PhD on the topic just to give a bit of background. Not because I wanted to be academic or called doctor, even though my mom likes that, (laughs) but rather I wanted to be as deep in my understanding of the science and the knowledge and as deep in my understanding of how to apply it so that we could do this. So we could take information from dusty textbooks and mind you, this is old stuff. It is not new, but bring it to the shallows so that everybody can access it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's, um, you know, I think definitely the the taking all of the, the what to teach. So I, my industry, just like yours, there's so much out there, so much, to teach there's so many warm up activities and and the riding skills and you know there's hundreds of different task analysis breakdowns of the different skills and different ways that you can set up your arena to ride but then the common question i get from instructors is okay well great i have all this information i have you know how to lay out my arena and and the different activities and even maybe possibly the skill progression to follow but how do I teach this to all of this, this wide range of students I have, like you mentioned that have various physical and cognitive ability levels. So how do I do this? How do I get all this information out there? I'm talking at them, but I'm not seeing a change. So yeah, definitely. I I fully agree with the overload of what to teach, but not how to teach it.
1: And And there's,
0: you know, there's quite a bit of, of why we should be doing something. But again, Absolutely, there is. how do we do the why? You know, why? Yeah, it's important, but how? So I think that's been the biggest help of in the language of coaching, how you break it down. And what I love about the book and, and you know, the information you share is you can take it more at the surface level of the techniques you share. And, you know, the, the I don't want to call it basic science because it's not basic, but, you know, surface level science yeah, of why of this course, course. principles. But then you can go down the rabbit hole and go into the neuroscience and the processing and working memory and you know all that fun stuff if you want to take it deeper. So one of the biggest questions I get, or I guess biggest pushbacks I get, and you kind of touched on this a little bit already, is I will recommend this book and they see the runner on the front. Of course. So beyond the the common thread of I teach movement, you teach movement. Another question I get is, well, it's a runner, but this person's also working with able-bodied individuals. So people that don't have disabilities. Why do you think it's so important for instructors, coaches, teachers, whoever's reading this information and putting into play, why do we need to have a fundamental understanding of kind of our baseline of how we should teach?
1: Oh, it's 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 a great it's a great question, and, and what I try to outline very early in the book, and I think the comment on on able-bodied versus not is, is a very good one, and it is one area that albeit we get into it for let's say certain things like Parkinson's is a specific use case that I go through in in a number of the chapters, not in any great depth. I'm not going to claim or pretend that the book is taking the, the science of coaching language and applying it to, to special populations in particular. So I do think that is if, if there was a critique, that's a fair critique. But again, that's not the baseline purpose of this book, and for which I do believe that book needs to be written at some point. And, but what I, true to, I, I do identify at the beginning is this is a movement-independent book. And that means it doesn't matter if you're teaching people how to move and ride a horse, or you're teaching people how to run, change direction, golf, tennis, novice, elite, young versus old, that does not matter. And I try to outline from the very beginning that don't be, don't be taken by my examples coming from, let's say strength condition as a field. But as you know, having the book, I do my best to cover basic movements. So it's, Straight line, side to side. And I do believe, and one of the chapters is on analogy and metaphor. I do believe there's enough movement metaphor throughout the book. And but most certainly the way it is written tries to span so many different examples so that you can aggregate a picture in your own mind and apply it to your field. Um, insofar as your question, it's a nuanced one because I do not want to claim to say. That the application of the science in the book, I don't want to claim to say that every study on every mental and or physical condition has been evaluated, because it hasn't. And so certain conditions, I would absolutely argue, have changes in cognition that might require us to pivot on some of my suggestions, but many of them do not. And so from a high-level perspective, the, without, we haven't gotten into it yet, but the suggestions that I outline in the book have been validated for Parkinson's, uh, looking at individuals on the spectrum, looking at individuals post-stroke, uh, I believe looking at individuals who have various neuromuscular uh, issues. These areas of a varied ability have been evaluated. And more often than not, we see that you know movement is movement is movement. The way language, from a coaching perspective, harmonizes with its interpretation and application to movement seems to be common amongst a diversity of contexts and individuals. And so I, I want to put a frame around that because you're right to ask the question. Mm-hmm. When we start to look into, though, the bedrock and I like how you talked about the bedrock principles ultimately, what is communication about? It is about creating shared meaning. That is what we are trying to do. We are trying to create shared meaning from a philosophical perspective. And that means, myself, as, as Nick or yourself as Sabra, we have an idea. We've watched this writer perform a given skill, and we have an idea. On what needs to change to improve that skill. And assuming that we are correct, mm-hmm. and right, Saber, you teach this stuff. Yeah. We have to be correct in what we want to change. Yes. If we have not identified the right what, it doesn't matter how good your language is, you're, you're still gonna be pointing them in the wrong direction. So we're gonna make the assumption you've identified the right what. So you have you have that clear meaning in your mind. Now you have to come up with a way to help the rider adopt that same meaning that same understanding. And so let me illustrate an example and then I'm going to come back to this. Mm -hmm. So my son Madden, who I I believe you met before we we left Phoenix, he was learning how to ride his bike over the last six months and he gets on his, we, we get the training wheels off. He gets on his bike and like any kid, he falls, he gets on, he falls, he gets on, but inevitably he learns to ride it. And what what I continue to argue with people is there's four conditions we need for learning to take place. There needs to be a clear goal. There needs to be a desire to achieve it. There needs to be immediate feedback and the person must have the, the ability, the baseline ability to do the skill itself. And so all four of those are present with a bike. The goal is to beat his sister. The desire is to beat his sister. Gravity is a rich source of feedback on a bike and he was physically able to pedal it. Okay. So he took those four natural conditions and he was learning, but then something happened, Sabra. He, every time he started to speed up, he struggled to keep the bike straight and he was overturning, and he kept falling over. Mm -hmm. If he was going slow, he could control himself. And so what started to happen, the four conditions for learning were there, but his desire started to go down. And even for those listening as an instructor, that's an interesting point I raise. Mm -hmm. When do you step in? And for me, oftentimes we step in when we feel the challenge is such that it's starting to erode their desire to pursue the solution. And so with my son, I saw that was happening and surely he would have inevitably gotten it, but I took it as a perfect moment to step in. And so I'm talking about shared meaning. So let's give an example now. Mm -hmm. I saw from a meaning perspective, he was not understanding that the handlebars were the source of the error. So I had to take my understanding of that, which I'm calling meaning, and I had to put that in his mind. But I had to do it in a way that was not intrusive, that was not a barrier, that did not cause overthinking. And so we're a musical family. And I asked him, I said, Madden, show me what your handlebars are doing when they're being loud. And this is one principle, Sabre, you know, that I talk about all the time in the book, the use of analogy, Mm -hmm. taking this thing that they're not, you know, he doesn't know the anatomy of a bike. He doesn't know about the mechanics, let alone the bike or his body, but he, he knows what the word loud means. And he loves music. So I said, Madden, show me what the handlebars are doing when they're loud. He, he instantly knew he made the move all around and I said, okay, Madden, now show me what the handlebars are doing when they're being quiet. And he held them still. He said, beautiful. Now, had he answered those questions opposite Sabra, I would have abandoned the analogy because right. I knew. <laughs> because right. And, and this, is, this is an important point. Those listening, let's not step over that. I, I say that jokingly, but I'm serious. The reason I would have abandoned that analogy is because the meaning behind the analogy, the, the meaning intended, was not going to be the meaning interpreted. And so that's the key. So I would have abandoned it. Luckily I didn't have to, he, he got where I was going with it. But then I asked him a third question. I said, okay, show me now what the hand, should your handlebars be loud or quiet when you speed up to catch your sister Gracie? And he, and he said, proudly quiet. I said, exactly. Now sure it wasn't perfect, but from that day on Sabra, no issues. He simply said to himself quiet. Mm-hmm. And so here we now go back. Now I'm working with my rider. I have identified the, the equivalent thing, the, the equivalent to my son's handlebars. Uh, maybe it's their, their heel position on the mm-hmm. stirrups. Maybe it's the way that they're, they're holding the reins. I don't, maybe it's their body position on the horse mm-hmm. itself. But we've identified it. And now as, as the instructor, I have to say, okay, how can I get them to correct that how can I capture that in words that they will understand and can apply? If I just tell the child, let's say, keep your heels down. I think that's one that Brittany would talk to me about all the time. She'd, keep your heels down. Keep... And it was just like, you know, a parrot. Yeah. If you have to say the cue 10 times, Sabre, right? It probably is not. They're not getting the meaning. They're not getting it. And so it's a matter of, okay, how do I get the meaning in language, which is our primary way of giving meaning, that they can action, right? That they can action and understand. And so now I find the words, I find the words for that, and they take them on board. And if they take them on board and can understand them and apply them, then we're gonna see a change. And so even though people might vary, Sabra, in their cognitive abilities, Mm even though people might vary in the type of language that they can process and understand. So for example, we know children have difficulty with complex analogies, but you know what I say, you know what? It's not that children have difficulty with complex analogies. They have difficulty with language referencing things they've never experienced. Yeah. Do you see the difference there? Yes. And so this was a long winded way to get to my point. I I don't think the book, and the, the primary thesis and the recommendations and strategies are going to vary that much because if you go to the basement of what I'm suggesting, it's identifying shared meaning. And if that is my North Star, then I will, con- I will continue to pursue language, phrasing, analogy that is appropriate for the abilities of the person and interest. And interesting to them as a person, which means I know them. I know what you like. If I was talking to you as we are right now, Sabre, I'm gonna try to come up with more horse related analogies Mm -hmm. to convey my topic than I would if I was talking to a sprint coach. By that very nature, the application of what I try to provide a blueprint, not rules, a blueprint for in the book.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, that's, I can say, you know, with 100% certainty that all of this information, even though you're giving, You know samples of of weightlifting and sprinting and all that in the book. It is easy to apply, and I have not found a piece yet that does not apply in the equine assisted activities and therapies industry. Now, there's some you know pieces that I might have to tweak with or play more, especially when it comes to disabilities, where you know, like you said, there's that's not what this book is about, but you know, taking what you've offered in here and the science behind it and and playing with it a bit to see what works in real life application and out there in the moment and, and teaching to what we're seeing. Um, so with the, the language of coaching, um, this is something that I've been familiar with with for several years, but you know, all this information in the book now kind of condensed and and given up To instructors and you know a a very easy to find resource. Do you have any tips on instructors that want to you know watch the presentations you've given the awesome book club, uh, videos that you've done that went along with the book, they're reading the book, any tips on them to start integrating this into their teaching without feeling like they're they're drowning with all this new information?
1: Well as you as you know, and you teed it up perfectly. That's why in the book, chapter seven is called the roadmap. Which, you know, what I'm asking people to do. The first thing, and I lay this out in the book. I've done, but I I did it without the guidance <laughs> of a book. You know, I, I was I was working blind through through these concepts and applying them. And so my hope is that the book can provide, as we said, the, the roadmap. And in the roadmap section. It literally is all of a sudden like I, I turn off the narrative and now the narrator is talking to you as the reader. It's like, okay, Sabra, what, let's recognize for a moment what we're asking you to do is to break open what I call your language locker mm-hmm. and peer into the machinery of something that oftentimes rides subconsciously. We don't think about it. We, have, we say heels down for the 10th time, and it does not alert anything in our mental architecture that says maybe this isn't working. I think for great coaches, it does. I think great coaches that are great communicators, even if they don't know why they're making the change to the language they are, inevitably they're attuned. That's a, it's a key word here. They're, tuned, they're tapped into this kind of relationship between what we say and what they think and do. But for many of us, and I most certainly was one of those, that's not the case. And that's, that's okay. The fact is that you recognize you want to get better at it, that's step one. That's the desire that we need to have to achieve the goal. But what did I say is the third step in my son learning to ride the bike? Feedback. And so step one in the roadmap, which I, I, give, I give timelines to doing this stuff, but step one is awareness. And I think for some people Sabra, it might be a week. It might be two weeks. I'd love to know from you how long you, in your own right, kind of reflected on these ideas before you felt yourself trying to put them on stage, so to speak. But, you know, for me, it could, it could be a number of weeks. But let's pause there. For you, once you heard these presentations, you read some of the articles, how long did you have to reflect just to get a baseline of how you currently coach before you even considered bringing the new ideas forward?
0: Well, <laughs> several years into this, I think I'm still reflecting. Um, of course, we but, are. <laughs> You know, I think after that initial presentation, again, a few years ago, it was, it was probably a good week of hearing or taking what I had heard, listening to what my common dialogue was yes. in the lessons watching how my students reacted to the dialogue and then trying to pick a simple piece that you'd presented and changing that one piece and kind of watching what happened. So I would say mm-hmm. that it was a pretty good process of like a week of observing, change something for a week, kind of try to get used to that new norm because it felt clumsy and awkward for a while
1: mm-hmm. and then
0: adding in a new piece. So it's, it's still, and it's still something I'm having to refine constantly. You know, some here that are outlined more clearly in the book now that I've recently, you know, started having to analyze probably a good, a week, I would say for me, a week seems to be average time of where I have to analyze digest. And then I start trying to, to tweak things.
1: Beautiful. And so funny enough, the, the first stage of aware is, is one week and in the book i outline you have three strategies you can use you can either just for some people they're just very naturally reflective and so i put in the book a couple of key questions you know the questions are around okay how much information did mm-hmm. i give did i use which kind of cues did i use from an instruction perspective how many cues did i use how did they respond and so i provide this almost guided reflection and either people can reflect on it write it down or record themselves and so, you know, just even next to me, I, these little Bluetooth mics that no one will even notice you're wearing. And so for some people, because they get into the moment, they, they know themselves, they're not very good at recalling everything they've done. And especially Sabre, if you're doing a couple lessons in a row and you mm-hmm. can't get over to your notebook to make some notes on how it went, that might be a better alternative. The key thing is it doesn't really matter. Pick the reflective practice mechanism you want. Now, what are you reflecting on? Well, again, I provide guidance in the book, but to foreshadow a little bit, we're simply trying to get a sense of your language machinery. Mm -hmm. How much do you say? What do you say? When do you say it? And here's the key. How are they responding? Are we looking up from the program to the person? That is the biggest thing that I had. That was the light bulb moment for me. The second I started to match what I said to how they responded to it at two levels. One, eye contact and body language. Before they've even tried the cue, am I getting those nonverbal signals of understanding? If they they can communicate, right, they are verbal, I might even ask them, hey, what does that mean to you? Does that make sense? Or put this in your own words. But then the third level is, does it actually make a difference? (laughs) They might be smiling, nodding, giving you the, the reply that says they completely understand you. And then it's a train wreck in its right. application. And so I, I kind of want all three, but I definitely want the third one. I want it to make a difference. So once you've done that, the book will clearly then help you understand, okay, here's, here's some definitions, here's the strategies, and kind of here's where I am relative to the, to the blueprint. Okay, beautiful. And just like your writer you will have identified within your skill of communication, within your skill of coaching, here are, and I love how you said it, here are the one or two things I want to try and tackle. And so one of the central thesis of the book is the content of our cues. Mm -hmm. And so cues can either relate to the body, kind of anatomical, we call internal cues. So extend this, flex that, or they can be external. They can focus on the environment. So in the case of, 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 writing, it would be focusing on the horse, reins, where the horse is going, rather than focusing on my body on the horse, I focus on my body integrates with the horse and the environment the horse is on. And so this dichotomy of internal or continuum of internal to external. And so let's say you say, I want to shift, as we talk about, more of my cues to be external. Phase two then is, well, how do we do that? As you said, Sabre, it's very clunky at first, If you realize that categorically a lot of your language is over here, but then you come to find out actually over here is a far richer way to communicate. It's hard just to make that change real time. And so in phase two, what I give people the strategies and and you could come up with your own is you have to start to create language, create cues when you have time. So it's easier to deploy them when you don't have time. Mm -hmm. If I'm sitting here in the moment of of a rider looking at me and my machinery is not pumping out the cue. I think I should use heels down is what I'm going to yell again. (laughs) And that's, that is okay. And so what we need to do is say, okay, I have now these three riders. I know that these are the common errors these riders deal with, or even take it a step further. Listen, Within my given curriculum of skills, I teach here are the common errors for all the major skills. Make it writer independent. Fantastic. And then from those core skills, I would then go pen to paper. Okay, using the strategies for creating external cues, using the, the strategies for creating analogies, let me try to, in my own time, come up with two or three for each of these core errors, for Mm -hmm. each of these core skills. And I even provide a little bit of a document in the book that is an example of how you might do that. And now I can have, as I go out and instruct, I have my program, but now also I have my cues. Mm -hmm. And what it does is it gives you more confidence. It gives you cues when you can't come up with them. But here's the cool thing about it. When you know the cues are there, guess what? there's less anxiety mm-hmm. frees up cognitive resources and i don't know about you sabra you'll actually start to create cues on the spot yeah. just like you get an original thought when you're giving a presentation yeah and so we take that time to create your cueing grids is what i call them and through that process naturally you'll find that in taking the effort to create them when you have the time you'll start deploying them more and more when you're actually working with a writer and inevitably you these are no longer strategies. This becomes part of your machinery. In mm-hmm. fact, I would argue your your coaching machinery fundamentally undergoes a change. Yes. It's not like hey, I'm just using this new tool. No. The tool becomes you. And I know that sounds a little philosophical, but the reason I can say that is I can't turn this skill off anymore, Sabra. Yeah. When agreed. I Okay. I like, I'm glad. So we're, this is where this becomes cool. When I watch someone move and I've identified the error, mm-hmm. my brain instantly, it's like a buffet. <laughs> it just, it's all, it's all right there. There's some external cues. There's some analogies, but that has only come from being brave to be clunky, Yeah, to be curious more than anything else. But to then say, okay, I know how I work. I'm going to get stressed out if I try to do this on the spot. So fine, take the strategies outlined in the book and the strategies to implement them outlined in the book and make your queuing grids. And as I'm sure you can tell people, there are 27 example queuing grids in the book. And so the examples of how to do this uh, are there. Now, if I'm someone listening, I'm thinking, oh, I want to know all the strategies. Well, we can only go, we, and we, we might be able to touch on some of them, but the key thing is the book outlines evidence-based, principle-based ways to optimize your communication for anybody, mm-hmm. for anybody. It gives you the principles of synthesizing cues and analogies that harmonize. And I create, I, I think, a strong argument, but it harmonizes your language With anybody's movement and it gives you the models to do this and then it gives you the habit-forming roadmap to bring those models to life
0: yes absolutely yeah and that you know like you said you can't you can't turn it off anymore so you know with this you know the methods and and having it and putting it down on paper first so that when I'm out in the arena and I'm seeing that I for those that have mentored with me I call the primary offender so you know I see that primary offender and then okay well if I fix that here's all the other things that are going to, to resolve hopefully from that but now how do I cue and it's instead of putting it on paper it's then in your head but it takes it takes time to get that fluid or that um, you know that fluent in this yeah, type of yeah. coaching speak so but the another thing I really like too about that is not only are you helping us build cues but in our instructor training. So when we're working towards certification, there's a lot of stuff that as, as a mentor, so someone who's training a new instructor, we're supposed to be teaching, you know, task analysis, specific, positive praise, specific constructive feedback, what's, how's wise, you know, timing of the cues, all of that. And I think this book does a wonderful job of piecing together all of those technical things that we're supposed to do and that we might already be doing out in the arena, but we just didn't know why we should be doing it or why it's working so well of like, oh, well, yeah, I use a lot of analogies and I feel kind of silly doing it because that's not the norm of what we see in our industry. Um, But now, okay, well, here's the scientific backing. why I'm seeing it work and and I don't I'm sure it relates to you guys too in your industry but a lot of the the great instructors out there that we look up to and you have a a really heavy following and are amazing with the progress they make with their students if you break down how they teach and all the components you're seeing more the external cues and more analogies and finding that that goal and that desire for that individual and they adapt and find that primary offender. So you know we just and I don't think had the science in all in one place to break down the teachings of all those greats that we we relate to.
1: Yeah. And you you said so many rich things in there, Saber, but the, the key thing is great coaches are pragmatists. They do what works. They do what works. And in teaching, and John Wooden, who's a famous right UCLA basketball coach, John Wooden has this idea of you have not taught until they have learned. And so for him, the means are only as valuable as their ability to achieve the ends, which is learning. And in both the case of your writers and in the case of my athletes, Learning is their ability to own the change. Mm -hmm. That means when they come back for this week's lesson, they are better than when they left the last lesson without you having to remind them how to be better. The second I have to remind them, I'm still in the teacher mode and they have yet to absorb that. And so what the language of coaching is about is trying to identify the means that achieve those desirable ends that actually result in learning that sticks as we talk about and where we have to be careful is this idea of ends means reversal, where the second it becomes more around using some fancy teaching model and committing yourself saying, "Yay, look at all these things I'm doing. But if we say, just, just stop, they're not getting better. Mm -hmm. And as simple as, as obvious Sabra as that is, Do you know how often we are offenders of operating in the reverse? We Mm -hmm. put the means in front of the ends and that's where we we have to, we have to reverse that. We have to go back to being committed. And if we do that, the great teachers are pragmatists. They find their way to the best solutions. And I think if a teacher is inclined to write and I am one such teacher inclined to write, it is our job to share those pragmatic and just so happens evidence-based methods that will get the best means that still respect and deliver the ends.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, final question here, it kind of goes along with, with that, uh, you know, what means works well to get that end method. Do you think a lot of coaches or instructors or teachers, do you think they're kind of hesitant to put some of these techniques and practices into play because they feel like their role as an instructor is diminished a little bit because we might be talking less or maybe supporting our student less, and we we maybe feel like we're not as um, as needed almost. Because I, I from what I've seen is you know when I'm telling someone to talk less and and you just pick a couple cues and and you want your student to do it without you, it's almost like it's there's an offense to the instructor. Well then I'm no
1: longer needed. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I think that's a, one, it's a great question. I think it's what I might call a, a preliminary conclusion. Mm-hmm. Meaning many people before they've tried or experienced these methods will in a preliminary sense, make the conclusion that I'm going to be out of a job. Well, <laughs> the, the the reality is you have two people here. We are more in need than ever. The second, a a writer, or an athlete experiences a style of coaching that is specifically designed to help them understand, to not make the learning difficult, to make the learning, at least of the information meant to support it, that does not need to be difficult. So for the first time, like, wow, this sounds simple. Mm -hmm. I finally get it and it is working. What you are now doing is creating a better connection between yourself and the rider, but here's the important piece: you're helping the rider connect to themselves. That is the source of the meaning. The meaning that hides in those words that I'm trying to teach in my book is a meaning that ultimately allows person to understand themselves through the dynamic action of moving and moving on a horse better. And that is ultimately a gift that people will come back for again and again and again. And even if they do leave inevitably, they leave with such gratitude, which for me is all I ever need as a coach. And there will be a line of people behind them looking (laughs) to have the same experience.
0: Absolutely. Fully, fully agree with that. Yeah. Well, so to wrap up our time here, because I know we're uh you've got some appointments to go to and everything. So Language of Coaching, this was the book that we've been talking about and referencing. and um, Where can people find out more about Language of Coaching, about what you do, podcasts, YouTube? I'll, I'll put a link to the book in the comments yep. and everything, but how can I learn more and get in
1: contact with you if need be. I'm having a, I'm having a go at this whole website thing. So there (laughs) is the language of is a website. As you note that by the same name, I have a YouTube channel and there's easily 10 hours of content that, that let's say overlaps the book but goes beyond. So it's meant to help people. So the reality is if someone wants to test drive these ideas, you know, the Sabra, they Mm -hmm. can go on to the the language of coaching YouTube channel and, and find it all. And as anyone knows who has has read or or written a book, usually by the time it's published, you already have more ideas. And so if you want (laughs) to stay on the the fresh ideas coming out of my mind, uh, it's at Nick Winkleman and Sabra, what I'd like to say for us to maybe do, let's do this again but maybe then we can actually put some film of, of writers and instructors Mm -hmm. and we can actually go through some live examples of various, you know, primary errors and cues and have a little bit of a live session on that. I think that might be a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, that would, that'd be absolutely a lot of fun to take, take and translate it into the horse. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining in and, and doing this interview. It's been something that, you know, during this, slow down time of the virus. It's awesome to be able to kind of take a breath and catch up and, you know, really, really appreciate your time. Cause I know there's probably several other coaches out there that are wanting to talk to you and get information on your book, but truly appreciate your time and, you know, taking just your time and information and, and passing on to someone in a different industry than you are. Um, even though it applies across the board.
1: Uh, absolutely. And, and, and Saber, let me say this. Um, I've watched your work, I've watched my wife's work, uh, I've watched the work of Horses Help at Large, and to see what everybody, I'm just going to say broadly, in your community does is just unbelievable. So thank you to you and and everyone who's listening in. The work you do is remarkably valuable, and you're making a true difference in this world. So thank you.
0: Great. Well, thanks. Have a wonderful rest of your afternoon, and thanks again for joining in.